Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Let's hope this next guest doesn't put you to sleep, am I right? Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart. And I'm Nick Gosling. And today we are joined by a man who needs no introduction, Dr. Bob Murphy. Bob Murphy has a Ph.D. in economics from New York University, and he's the author of many books on economic theory and libertarianism. He's a research assistant professor with the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University, and he blogs regularly at his website, consultingbyrpm.com. Bob is pretty well known for many, many superpowers, but today he is going to be joining us to talk about one of them, and that is how to convince people that society could work without the state. You think you can pull that off in an hour, Bob? I'm going to try. Bob, you know, most of our listeners are adherents to the Austrian school, but, you know, one of the things that I think as libertarians we run into a lot are people who profess to be some type of conservative, and they're like, yeah, I like the free market, and I'm a capitalist. But for some reason, they always stop short of following that through to its full conclusion. For example, why not have a free market in police services and defense and law and roads and all these other things that, for some reason, people think just can't be supplied by the market. It must come from the state. So to start us off is kind of laying the groundwork. What do you consider and, and what is has historic Austrian thought considered to be kind of the fundamental rules of economics that just apply to market interactions? And from that, what is the true definition of pure capitalism? Okay, sure. So I, I think Austrian economists um, in here, I mean, these aren't particularly Austrian insights. I think a lot of other schools of thought would share them to some degree, but we can all recognize the the inherent drawbacks to providing services, you know, via a monopoly. That in general, if you have competition in an industry, that's going to keep prices down. That's going to have quality be up, and it's going to protect consumers and employees from, you know, arbitrary power trips by the people who are controlling the running the show. And so that's, you know, among other reasons, you know, that's why there's a prima facie case against having the state monopoly in courts and police protection and military defense you know if if you wouldn't trust the 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 state to be in charge of tv production or you wouldn't want them to be in charge of pizzas because you know oh yeah the pizzas probably the quality would go down and you know then they could lean on you and say hey you better do what we say if you criticize the government no more pizza for you right if if that's the kind of thing and you realize you know that that would be true i mean who, who would want the government to have monopoly on something like pizza and then, okay, well, if you can't trust them with that, but you're going to trust them with nuclear weapons, you're going to trust them to decide whether you're guilty of homicide or not. You're going to trust them to come to your house when someone's breaking in. And so these are serious, weighty issues. And so obviously the fact that you know competition, monopoly, those are important in any sector. So here too, these are life and death issues. Those things are true in this sector as well as, as other ones. Um, another main thing in terms of just Austrian economics is Mises' critique of socialism, right? Saying that, so, you know, in, in his exposition, not talking about 
courts or military defense, just in general, talking about economics, Mises was saying the fundamental flaw with socialism, put aside issues about incentives, put aside you know concerns about the corruption of power and so on, even if the central planners honestly wanted to help their subjects, they were just completely benevolent. And even if they had access to all the experts in terms of engineering knowledge and you know physical facts and technology and so on, nonetheless, Mises argued, they would be unable to rationally allocate resources. Because if, if it was true socialism, there wouldn't be markets for the means of production. You wouldn't know how much an acre of farmland was worth relative to a barrel of crude oil or relative to that factory down the street or what have you. And so they wouldn't be able to look at an enterprise that was consuming inputs in order to create goods and services and be able to tell, is this a good use of those resources? They would have no way of reducing the inputs and the outputs to a common denominator. So in a market economy, of course, the way that's, that happens, you get around this problem, is through prices. And so the business owner can ask the accountant every, every quarter, hey, how did we do? Did we turn a profit or not? And so that's the, the measure of, are we using resources efficiently in a market economy? But under socialism, you wouldn't have that. And so I just applied that same insight that Mises had to goods and services in general to the particular areas of the things we're talking about today, namely police protection and military defense, that without market prices in those services, the, the central planners, in effect, you know, they're, they're like socialism in those particular sectors. And so just like socialism doesn't work when it comes to TVs and uh, cars and so forth, it also doesn't work very well when it comes to protecting you from burglars or keeping foreign armies out. So in that respect, would you say that basically any system of state, uh, no, no matter how quote-unquote limited it may be, is, is essentially just a, a shade of socialism? So in other words, like, I mean, we have, even if we did have a constitutionally limited government in the United States, which, I mean, that's just a joke these days, but even if we did, that would, would you say that's still a, a form of socialism in, to, to some degree, and therefore, anywhere the state exists, there cannot be a true free market? Uh, well, one thing is, Murray Rothbard one time asked Mises, and he said, hey, you know, we can see there's obviously gradations of government intervention, and you know, some, some places are pretty close to a free market, other places are outright socialism, like the Soviet Union, you know, top-down central planning. Uh, there's welfare states of the earth. And what Mises told him is he said that he thought the crisp line between like a market economy that just had a really you know excessive intervention, but it was still a market versus just not this is socialism. He said, is there a stock market that if the authorities let people own, you know, have ownership claims in corporations, then the people ultimately own the means of production and it was just heavily regulated. So that's, I mean, I'm not directly answering your question. I'll, I'll, I'll not turn to that, but I just want to have that framework that in, in terms of the general question of, you know, can you draw a sharp line? That was the one that Mises gave. So what I guess what I'm saying is, you, yeah, you can have a, a limited state, you know, like the, the United States as of 1905 or something. I wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that was basically socialism. That's not what I would say. But I would say if you understand why socialism is a general economic system doesn't work and it would be you know a horrible way of producing cars and houses and food for your people well the same problems that plague socialism on a grand scale 
are still there if you just say, oh, okay, I'll, instead of producing cars and food and houses, let's just let the politicians and the you know bureaucrats and so on, they'll just provide military defense and the legal system and the prison system and stuff like that. And I'll say, well, the same problems are there. So I think the burden of proof is on the you know the person who wants to defend that system to explain why all the problems that we know are there in any other good or service for some reason either aren't there or yeah they're still there but there's other considerations that trump those factors well it seems like some of the considerations that may trump those factors would be they don't believe that the price mechanism would work well in those situations of defense or that these kinds of things are non-rival they're you know sort of common good uses rather than something letting the price mechanism work right yeah and so i'm glad to have that that discussion so i'm not trying to argue that what i just said right now would end would end the discussion but i do think it needs to be framed that you know it's for somebody who is like somebody like paul krugman or somebody it can understand why to him it would be ridiculous but for somebody who understands the serious problems with government provision of services in any other sector that person, I think, really does need to carefully consider and, and really take seriously this this critique. Um, so you're right. Yeah, a standard argument that economists would give as to why something like military defense ought to be provided by the state and not left to the provision of the market is that they say, oh, this is a classic example of what's called a public good. And so, yes, something like protecting Americans from incoming uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, that's the kind of thing where if uh, you know, one guy pays for it and the guy down the street doesn't pay for it, you can't really restrict the service to the guy who paid, right? And, and also by the same token, to protect the one guy from an incoming ballistic missile, it's, if you protect the guy down the street from it also, it's not like it takes away the protection from the first guy. So these are the, as you say, these are the attributes, um, non-excludability and what's called non-rival consumption that are the attributes of what's called the public good. And so economists think this is particularly difficult for the market to provide this kind of service because, you know, a private company, if, if enough people pay for it, well, you know, to, def- to put up some kind of defense for missiles that are going to hit in a certain area, well, then why wouldn't the people in that area just realize, wait a minute, I'm going to stop paying because as long as enough of my neighbors pay, then, you know, we'll still have that service. So that's, there is an issue there. So do you, I mean, do you want me to launch into what, what I think the answer to that is? I would love to hear your answer because I think that I, I think a lot of people would be like, I don't have an answer for that with when they're arguing with non-libertarians. Right. Okay. So the minarchists who you, you may want to convince them, the ones who are listening and the anarchists just to listen to a good argument. Sure. So the first thing I would say is it's not as if with, with a lot of these things, I, I don't think it's it's correct to look at it and say, oh, there's just this this threshold that we need of of we, we need this this quote optimal level of funding or that you know economists would say yes this is the Pareto efficient point or that one that maximizes Caldor Hicks efficiency and so on and because of the free rider problem and these public good nature of it if 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 funding is only 68 percent of that then that's it I, I don't think that's the right way to frame it I think the issue is in the real world. Are you actually going to get better protection by giving a group of politicians the ability to monopolize, you know, your defense? And so there's, for example, I think in the United States right now, part of the reason we could be vulnerable to an outside attack is because of things that the U.S. government has done abroad, right? And so there's there's that sort of element too. 
And there's plenty of cases in general of governments using their standing armies, not just to protect the population from foreign aggressors, but also to victimize their own people. Right. So there's there's elements of that, too. You got to take into account. But let's just focus on this narrow economic issue. The the primary mechanism that I see is what would happen in a modern you know, commercial society that's fair, that's wealthy is insurance companies would be the ones that would be funding really expensive defense operations. So like, look at a big city like Manhattan or Chicago. People own these skyscrapers, those things, you know, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars of property there. And so there's like fire insurance you'd have. Hey, if there's a big fire, that could knock out stuff. So you have fire insurance, you have all kinds of stuff. And I think one of this, the uh, provisions of these insurance contracts would say, what if the building is destroyed by an incoming enemy army? Or what if it's taken over by a foreign army and then the owners get indemnified? And so if you're the insurance company now that's issued that contract and you're collecting premiums saying, you know, if our customers have their property destroyed or seized by foreign armies, we're going to compensate them according to some formula. Well, now that insurance company has an incentive to reduce the probability of that happening. And so they would be the ones I think that would place bounties. Uh, you know, so some foreign army is massing on the border, then the, the insurance company, I think, would say, OK, and they would run numbers and figure out, OK, you know, for any any, you know, once they cross the border, any tank that somebody takes out, we will pay you thirty thousand dollars. And if you knock out enemy infantry, we will pay you five hundred dollars. You know, they can and, the, and, the, and those numbers wouldn't be arbitrary. That's that's where I'm coming from with the economic calculation stuff, because they could run the numbers and see because they're the ones insuring the property. You know, they could they could come up with some estimates about how much, you know, for every tank that they take out, how much do we think that's saving us and so on. So those numbers wouldn't be arbitrary. And then the private sector would be there and they would, you know, there'd be bounties on these things. And so it, so that's where the, the funding would be. And then just like there's competition in other areas and it, it produces better than a monopoly. Same thing here, that if you didn't just have the government be the one in charge of the whole operation, but you had the whole private sector open to the idea of, hey, there's now prices for these things. Go to it, guys. You know, there'd be different ways of trying to do it. Some people would lay, you know, mines. Some people would have snipers. Some people would get, you know, shoulder missiles. Some people would, would have helicopters that would go. But there's, so there's different things they would do. All the eggs wouldn't be in one basket the way it is under state-based defense uh, operation. And I think that's the way it, it would play out. So uh, let me just circle back. As far as the free rider problem, so yeah, you could say that some aren't going to pay and some will, but but notice there, I mean, if troops are massing at the border, like people, it's not going to be an equilibrium for everyone just to pay zero cents and do nothing, right? So you can argue that, oh, relative to some textbook outcome where the marginal benefit, marginal cost curves cross, this is the optimal level of funding. But in the real world, they're not just going to sit there and do nothing. They're going to pay for it, and I think the incent, the efficiencies of private provision would more than compensate for the fact that, oh, yes, there might be some people who sit back and don't contribute and let their neighbors pay for it. But I think the, the defense there is still going to be a lot more efficient than giving the whole thing over to the government. So you started to jump into the insurance side there, which I think is, is very important to this discussion. I, I, I agree with what you've written in your works and Hans Hoppe and, and Rothbard that insurance would really have to play a a major role in a stateless society 
And for, for our listeners here, I mean, I, I think insurance kind of has this sort of caricatured or misunderstood role by many people, um, especially those on, on the left, but even on the right. I mean, but already insurance companies permeate business transactions around the world in ways that most people aren't even aware of. There, there's international business arbitration and errors and omissions insurance and bank insurance and all these kind of, and I'm not talking like FDIC, but private bank insurance, all, all, all these kind of things where insurance really holds up uh, and facilitates trade of, of goods and services internationally right now that, that people just don't see. So can you, can you get a little bit into that and talk to us about like the, the history of insurance, its intended purpose, and what role it plays in the market? I think the fundamental purpose of insurance is when there are when there's when there's events that would that can strike a, a homogeneous population infrequently, but it's it's catastrophic when they strike. All right, so it's like you if you get a large group of people and they're all susceptible to this particularly bad outcome that's devastating if it happens, but there's a small chance of it happening, and so instead of just having everybody in that group just sitting there and rolling the dice and, and hoping it doesn't hit them, but if it does hit them, oh wow, that's devastating. The function of insurance is you take that small chance of a really bad outcome and you transform it into a certain chance of a of a quite manageable outcome. Namely, everybody pays a fixed premium, and then the insurance company indemnifies you fully. You know, if the disaster happens to strike you, so this is stuff. You know, like that's what life insurance is is for, or term life insurance at least for younger people. That yeah, there's a small chance that you know the the young breadwinner he's he's out has a job he's supporting. His wife and three kids at home, and they're young and they have a mortgage, and it would just be catastrophic if that guy had a heart attack suddenly next week. And you know, you don't want them to be a burden on their on their relatives and whatnot, or the church or what have you. And so you just go get a life insurance policy because you know, with a population of a thousand households like that, you can you know run the actuarial tables and so on and figure out okay, how many are probably going to die. And so then you know they just charge accordingly. So I mean, this it's sort of like. You know, before there were things like mutual aid societies, or just the, it was just sort of the social norms that the community in general. Yeah, if that happened, you know, so the the young person, the, the hunter, or somebody dies, then you know the other families would would sort of take care of the the wife and kids or whatever share. So I mean, the, the, that principle is still there that people can recognize. Oh my gosh, yeah, that that could have happened to any of us. It just happened to happen to them. So we all need to pitch in to 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 help those people. Well, that's insurance just kind of formalizes that, makes it more um the scientific as it were in terms of num you know accounting uh same thing with fire insurance car insurance all these other areas you're right one thing too is like with with medical insurance on the on the the doctor's side right so medical malpractice insurance so a similar thing there where companies come in and that's sort of you know in between the the provider of the service and the customer so that in case something goes wrong the customer gets indemnified and so I think in general, insurance would play a huge role in a free society. A lot of the stuff that right now people assume, oh, yeah, well, you would need the state to regulate that stuff because just one-off transactions, you can't expect consumers to keep track of that. Like, for example, airlines, people think, oh, there's got to be something like the FAA in the United States because, you know, you don't want it to be like that situation in that movie Rain Man, right, where you got to just know the statistics of every plane crash going back 30 years before you buy your ticket. Well, no, if you had insurance companies that would say to customers, if you, if the plane happens to go down, 
then we will pay your estate a million dollars, let's say. If that was a standard thing when you bought a ticket for an airline, that that was just part of the contract is that, you know, if there's a crash, then your estate gets a million dollars. Well, now, you know, the insurance company that's making that pledge, that's backing that up, is going to be up to them to make sure that these airlines are doing a good job, right? And the pilots aren't aren't getting behind the, the wheel drunk and stuff like that. And so it's the, the insurance companies that might have contracts with the airlines saying, we have the right to send our inspectors to show up for a surprise inspection and make sure you've been changing the oil and, you know, keeping the plane up to speed and we're going to stop and give a, a quick uh, drug test to the pilot. You know, so and these would all be voluntary contracts, right? So that it would, it would play out in the market. And so, you know, I don't know exactly what would happen, but there would be a trade-off between various competing factors. And the point is, though, that the insurance company would have the incentives to really make sure we were in a good spot in that trade-off between, you know, regulation versus keeping prices down for customers. So I think that, yes, in general, insurance plays a huge role in our lives. And a lot of people don't really understand that. And probably, unfortunately, the thing they think of most is like health insurance right now. And that doesn't seem to be working. But I would say, right, the area where the government is most heavily involved is screwing up that particular market. But most people you know, don't really have a problem with their car insurance. They just take that for granted. Oh, yeah, I got my car insurance. Yeah, I think the perception, especially because of the health insurance you know, experience, we, we feel like the insurance companies sort of block the price mechanism from occurring in the medical industry. And so I think people have this bad perception of of insurance. I mean, even John Stossel, you know, he's a libertarian and he is pretty against insurance, doesn't seem to have an appreciation for it. Is is it just people don't understand the nature of insurance? Why do you think it's that's kind of hard to get people to buy in on that? I, I realize people on the left aren't going to be too thrilled, but you know, your minicris and stuff, they don't they don't see that as an important role. Well, I think because in in terms of our day-to-day lives, the, the only time we usually deal with insurance companies lately as Americans is when you're arguing with your health insurance company, right? Because the by I said normally insurance by its very nature is something you would rarely use, right? So most people aren't getting in car accidents or having their house burned down or suddenly dying. And so though you know though that's the those are the times when the other types of insurance you have kick in. So yeah, if your house burns down and then your fire insurance company sends you a big check, you're not gonna be like, oh man, I hate, I hate the principle or the you know the concept of insurance. You're gonna say, wow, I'm really glad I had insurance. Or you get in a you know car accident, what have you. So um, you know, that it, it, I think, like I said, I'm just repeating myself that the problem is that one type of insurance company people deal with a lot nowadays is their health insurance company. And that's because insurance in that sector has been perverted, right? We're getting it's it's to the point now where your health insurance company has something to say and participates in every single transaction related to medical care. And that would be like if every time you went and got your oil changed for your car, you call up your car insurance company and they were supposed to pay for it or you know they made you pay $10 of it or something. And then they, they negotiated with the oil change place to, to negotiate on the price. I mean, that would be crazy. If that were the system, you'd probably hate your car insurance company too. Right. And so that's that's the problem. I think that's why people have a, a bad taste in their mouth with insurance. But again, you know, just consider that that though that's that's not about insurance per se. That's about health insurance. And notice that clearly that's the one area of the insurance sector that is most heavily regulated by the government. So it shouldn't shock us and it shouldn't be taken as like evidence against the market being able to work to say, oh, yeah, when the government gets really heavily involved, it can screw up health insurance. 
Bob, you're a little too modest to plug your own book on this show, but you do have a book about the health insurance racket, right? Yeah, it's called the the Primal Prescription, and it's uh, it's co-authored with Doug McGuff, who is a uh, an ER medical doctor. So yeah, we go through and you know give a whole history of so so it's not just us saying, oh well, something screwed up, so it must be the government. We don't really know how or specifically, but come on, we know the government did it. Like we we go through you know since the Great Depression onward enlist all the various rounds of the government intervene this way to fix this alleged problem. And then they caused these unintended consequences. And the government came back 10 years later with another wave and just boom, boom, boom. So one quick example, like right now, part of the reason the healthcare health insurance system is so screwy is that, like you said, it's, and I can see why somebody like John Stossel would be very skeptical of this. We've gotten to the point where American, you know, the, the, the so-called customer in the, in the health transaction the you know the patient is not really the customer anymore he's like this annoying nuisance that bothers both the health insurer and the the medical provider right because the the doctor doesn't really care about keeping the customer the the patient happy because the doctor's getting paid by blue cross or getting paid by medicare or you know some some third party it's not the customer who has who's writing a check saying oh yeah and if you're not you know if you're not good to me and you don't keep me happy then i'm just going to go to the doctor down the street that's not the way these markets are working lately. So one of the reasons for that, among others, is that a lot of Americans get their health insurance through their employer. You know, notice if you if you lose your job, you might say, oh, geez, I can't get that elective procedure right now because I'm in between jobs and I don't have health insurance. But nobody says, yeah, I'd like to go to that party, Frank, but I can't drive because I lost my car insurance because uh, I'm in between jobs right now. So I can't have car insurance. People don't even talk like that. That would be weird to think your car insurance had anything to do with whether you were in between jobs or not. But why is it that your health insurance is tied to your employer? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one is back during World War II, there were wage and price controls. And so one of the ways employers were allowed to bid talent away from other companies is the government said, yeah, you can't offer them more money, that's illegal. But if you wanna offer them, you know, that you'll pay for the, the premiums for their health insurance, you can do that. So that's, that's one of the reasons that historically, you know, we got into this rut. Along these lines, I mean, now that we're, we're we're kind of talking about health insurance and medical care, let's kind of dive into some specific controversial areas of things that people seem to think couldn't happen or happen well without the government. So uh, things like public services, so ambulances, um, fire departments, utilities like your sewage and your electrical, all these things tend to be tied in somehow to the state, either because it, it's directly provided by the state or there's some kind of state-approved vendor or contractor who kind of has the crony deal going on that, that they're the only provider. What would that look like in, let's say, a large city if there was no uh, state entity per se and everything was just going through private business? Okay, sure. So let me just give the quick sort of like real-world observation, and then we'll, we can talk more about the abstract theory that economists bounce around. But, you know, it used to be when I was younger that there was just one was telephone provider, you know, telephone service. You just had your local monopoly and that was it. And people would give reasons for why that is. But now, of course, with cell phones, you know, it's you get multiple providers and there's and then with the rise of the Internet and, you know, all those, those sort of uh, Internet based services. And you can see that the prices came way down in those various plans. Right. And so it's 
you know, that, that's just a real world example showing that competition can work in these areas. So the, the textbook reason that economists would give as to why, oh yeah, you need to have government heavy intervention in these areas, the things that you just listed there, is they say, oh, there's a, what's called a natural monopoly. And so the idea is, oh yeah, free, a free market, open competition wouldn't work with something like routing electricity to your house because then you know you would have 10 different companies and they'd have their own you know they'd build their own wires and whatever in there and that just would be impractical and so there'd be mergers and so on and eventually it would just make sense for one company to be you know maintaining the wires in your neighborhood and then there would be a, a monopoly and so they could charge you whatever they want especially for something like electricity that's critical and so the idea is instead of just letting that 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 natural monopolist take over and just you know be a predator Instead, we'll have the government come in and anoint a monopoly, but then you know have regulate their prices so that now if the power company wants to raise rates, they got to submit a proposal to the, the local government and get them to sign off on it before they're legally allowed to charge you more for your electricity. You know, they have to show, well, look, you know, generation costs have gone up and population has grown and we had to fix, the, you know, there was a storm last year that knocked down all these wires. We had to fix that. So here, you know, and, and that's what they have to do to, to raise rates. So the the problem with that is there's not just this fixed engineering fact about how much does it cost to provide electricity to households. And then, oh, yeah, the government could just say you can charge that plus some small, modest markup for your profit. That if you give that formula, that cost plus formula, now you've taken away any incentive for the utilities to innovate. They have no reason to find out some new way to provide the service at a lower price because then they can't go to the rate makers and, and get an increase in rates, right? That whole point is they have to show that their costs have gone up in order to raise prices under the current formula. So I think that's the main you know, flaw with that approach is it just locks in the current way of doing it and there's very little innovation. So you know, in, in general, there, even if there's not competition like going to a particular neighborhood, there's new housing developments springing up all the time. And so just nationally, if there are several companies that in different cities have market share, now if you're some you know you're some builder and you're going to build 50 houses now in this new area, you could still put out bids to the people to come in and provide you know wiring and so forth to bring in electricity to those households, right? And there could be several different competing companies. So it's this idea that oh there would be this one you know brief three week span of competition and from then on the natural monopolist would rule. That that's crazy. That's clearly not how things would play out. Well, and we could probably even comment here that we have to ask, what is the definition of a true monopoly, right? And I mean, Rothbard talks about this in, in his works. There's there, there's a difference between what you just talked about, a natural monopoly, it, it, where you have a business that simply because it's the best, it, it, it has the, the best quality or the lowest prices. And for whatever reason, consumers just choose to go there and puts all their competition out of business. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess this is really more of an ethical question at that point, but I, I'd kind of say, great, you know, I mean, that's, don't we all want lower prices and, and more quality? But then there's usually when, when there's what we call a monopoly, it's because it's backed by the state somehow, right? There's some kind of cronyism involved, some sort of special protection through either a, a, a contract, a government contract, uh, some type of legislation preventing competition, which is what the, the post office is, legalized monopoly. Uh, and it, we see this in public utility companies, all these kind of things. So can you can you just talk briefly about the distinction between a, a genuine 
monopoly where the state is backing it up through coercion and a natural monopoly where a business just happened to do better than its competition. Okay, sure. So you're right. Rothbard has, a, that's one of the great things that he does in his, in his book, Man, Economy and State, which is a, and this is a part of what was an original contribution there. So a lot of what Rothbard did there was just sort of clarify and, and, um, you know, distill the the ideas from previous economists in a very readable fashion, just to you know transmit the theory to the next generation of readers. But one of the things that was a unique contribution, as you just said, is his critique of the whole idea of monopoly price. Um, and so you're right, Rothbard does a great job of just going through and saying, like, what do we even mean by that? Like, construed narrowly enough, everything is a monopoly, right? That you know, my my services, if I'm going to go give lectures for you know as an after dinner speaker. I'm the only one who can provide a lecture by Robert P. Murphy, you know, so I'm a monopolist in that respect. Or, you know, the heavyweight champ of the world is a monopolist or Babe Ruth was a monopolist, right? And so in Robert's saying at some point you realize, well, that's that's kind of silly. That's not really what we mean. And so you start going through and trying to understand what is it that people are worried about. And ultimately, you're right. He He comes to the conclusion that there's no real coherent benchmark to say that really what the, the econ textbooks mean when they talk about a quote monopoly price is they mean as opposed to a so-called competitive price where they have this hypothetical world where there's lots of sellers who are all selling identical products and that, 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 that. but if, if those sellers don't exist, what's the point of holding up this allegedly, you know, optimal benchmark of a perfectly competitive market where that doesn't exist. So a, a great example of that kind of stuff is like, if there's some new product, right? Like some innovator comes in and they create some new thing and they're the first to rush it to market. And in the beginning, they don't have any competitors because they're the first one with this new product. And so, yeah, you could say maybe they're charging a higher price than they would if there were lots of sellers offering the same product. But that's not really relevant. The question is, do you want them doing that or not? And if they're not allowed to charge a high price, then maybe the incentive to innovate and to come up with new products is going to be reduced. So there's that whole realm. But back to the issue of um, you know, utility service or sewage services, things like that, phone service, perhaps. Th there, the, when I was using the term natural monopoly, that's from like textbook economic theory. And that has a specific meaning. So that doesn't just mean a monopoly that is not granted by special state privilege. There it means um, there are certain industries where the claim is that because of its nature, there's economies of scale or whatever. And it just it doesn't make sense for there to be 10 companies providing, you know, the service of bringing water to your house in a certain area because they each, you know, they, the, the company has to have a pipe to get the thing from the pumping station to your house or, you know, from the water tower to your house. And so it would be crazy if you had 10 different companies laying 10 different pipes side by side, you know, that's just, that's not going to work. So they're going to say because of economies of scale and mergers and so forth, when the dust settles, there's only going to be one company operating in any particular region if you just had it left it up to pure market forces and then the claim is that company would have a lot of market power over the houses in that region and that's the you know the textbook rationale for regulating that kind of a sector rather than like regulating all the pizza joints in a certain town because the idea is oh if one pizza joint's charging too much they're charging way above the cost some rival will open a pizza joint down the street but the idea here is not if a water company is charging households a pretty big markup, you know, it, they would have to really be charging a huge markup before it made sense for a competitor to come in and lay their own pipes side by side to undercut them. 
And so the idea is to so that that's the rational, and that's what's called a quote natural monopoly. And so I just tried to you know before talk about why I think that's kind of a silly critique when you realize we're not talking about one neighborhood. End of story. There's new housing developments being built all the time, and companies can operate on a national scale. So even if it's true that one company only has the the, the contracts for houses and this zip code or something, that's still there's still plenty of healthy competition. You know, for any time a new place opens up, some people's impulses might, you know, as you're saying all those things, it's like, well, shoot, if we're going to expect a natural monopoly for reasons of efficiency, then what's the big deal having a local jurisdiction, you know, carry my water to my house? You know, I think people kind of think of a monopoly as bad because they just wish there were other choices. And some people will say, oh, I, you know, I don't have any choice and I got to pay my water and sewer and it's the only choice I have. Uh, whereas they can go to any pizza place they want. And I think people kind of shrug and say, well, you know, I chose to live in this township and that was just part of my choice to live there. And it seems enough, it seems voluntary enough where it doesn't feel coercive in the sense that, you know, a national federal government would. Uh, what would you What would you say to those concerns? Well, if I'm understanding what you're saying, you know, the, the claim is, oh, it's not really that, that big a deal. Um, so certainly... If I have to choose between a monopoly that's imposed from Washington, D.C. on the whole country versus thousands of little monopolies imposed by, you know, city or town governments just in the area where they have jurisdiction, obviously the latter is a better outcome. But that's partly because that's really less of an effective monopoly. And there is competition at the you know city or county level or town level, you know, between jurisdictions. It doesn't feel like a big, bad state. Right. And. But again, but that, that's sort of the logic of it, because, yeah, if one particular city, you know, really did have draconian regulations of play where they had a real crony deal with. I mean, look, look, in Flint, it's certainly the case there that the government's arrangements, you know, in terms of providing water to the citizens did not turn out so well. All right. So it's it's still true that, yeah, you, you ultimately if you don't trust the government with mundane things like television and pizzas and stuff, why would you trust them with your drinking water? I still think, or I think that's a valid thing to bring up. But yeah, the the fact is, if they're really bad, technically, yeah, you can just move to another city. That's not nearly as hard as saying, oh, well, if the federal government's bad enough, you can just leave the country. So, so that's that's all true. But I'm saying, because for the same reason that that's right, even more so than I would say, yeah, don't even give this the city and local governments, you know, the ability to ha- to have that that monopoly. And so. It's kind of odd. It's like, oh, because we're worried that the market might have a, quote, natural monopoly, we're going to go ahead and impose that outcome at the outset through the government's coercive apparatus. You know, so we're, we're, the reason we have a government picked monopoly is to protect you from a private monopoly. That's what the, their argument is. And that seemed kind of silly. Right. And we know that nobody's cousin sits on the board of those local townships who's who also has a you know a construction company or a water company you know that kind of thing doesn't happen ever does it <laughs> right i mean and, and you know that you're kind of circling back to my original point was or my main problem with the you know the abstract level of the theoretical critique of this is that you know the, the approach this is oh because there'd be a quote natural market monopoly there where they would have a huge markup over the the cost of providing electricity or sewage or drinking water or whatever Therefore, why don't we just impose the, you know, have the government pick some company and strictly regulate it for cost plus? The fundamental problem with that in terms of just economic theory is that it's getting rid of the discovery mechanism, right? That it's not, it isn't just a fact of nature. How much does it cost 
to you know take care of sewers or something for a neighborhood that that's not just a fact of engineering it's dependent on you know the the companies and what what their incentives are and so if you have competition then they're going to you know they're not they can't be too lazy about it right if they get if they let their costs get out of control and they charge a lot then there is ultimately scope for some competitor to come in and undercut them or at least when there's a new development being built adjacent to that some outside company can say to that housing developer, whoa, I'll come in at 20% lower than what these clowns are charging you because I looked at their operation over here and they're pretty lazy and sloppy. We can do the job better. So you're going to minimize the damage at the very least if you have it. It's, it's all private. So even if some company does rest on its laurels, they're eventually going to go out of business. Whereas, yeah, if the government's literally anointing a company as the monopolist and everybody in the city has to go to that company, then they can get away with a lot of waste. Well, it sounds like you've really thought a lot about all of these things because you have all kinds of answers. So I want to throw one thing that you've probably never heard a libertarian wonder about or a minarchist wonder about. What about the roads? <laughs> well, it's funny here. I mean, I especially now with, with modern technology, like, with, you know, easy pass and those things. It's really amazing to me that this is still this huge stumbling block for people. So coincidentally, uh, in July, I'm going to have an econ lib. You know, so econlib.org, um, the, one of the feature articles of the month, assuming that I'm still in the queue for that, is going to be on this very topic. So, I mean, here, look, there's historically it, roads were privately produced, right? Like turnpikes and things like those were like a mer- the, when they, you know, originally they were somebody had like dirt roads or something. And then the merchants in a town would realize, hey, if we could pave these things. And just make it easier for people to come and go. That would boost, you know, traffic coming into and, and patronizing our businesses. And so you might get all the big merchants in a populous area to kick in and to pave, you know, what was previously just a dirt road or something. So you know, the, the market can provide this stuff. And now, more modern times, look, the huge problem with roads right now is traffic jams, right? And especially like in major cities. I mean, there's there's estimates. If you take into account like all the people's time and how valuable their time is, let's think of something like New York City or LA. You've got all these professionals who might, you know, would bill their their clients hundreds of dollars an hour, and they might lose three to four hours a day just sitting in traffic, coming and going from the office. I mean, it, it adds up to billions of dollars in terms of forfeited pro- productivity. And so, what? Why is that happening? That's not a fact of nature. That's oh, oh, there's a lot of people, so of course you're going to be stuck in traffic. For, no, that's because the roads are owned by the government, and they don't charge enough. That that that's a, a, a shortage where the demand exceeds the supply. That's what it, what it looks like in, in the context of transportation. So if those things were privatized, then they would set tolls based on you know usage, and so they'd be. You do see this in certain cities right now, anyway. It's just they don't do it enough. So it is true, like in New York, to use the bridge to come into the city, you you pay more if you're doing it, you know, during prime time than if you do it at eleven o'clock at night. But I'm just saying they they would let the market mechanism work even more so if you had private ownership. And then because they would do that, and they would be making boatloads of money during peak, you know, prime time, then there'd be the incentive other entrepreneurs would come in and they would build a lot more bridges and tunnels and so on to get people in and out of the city. So, you know, again, just leaving a service in the hands of the government, what, why anybody thinks that's a good idea and that's the way to keep costs down and that's the way to provide service to poor people. I mean, it just shocks me that that's what people think. 
On Facebook, I see a lot of things come through my feed where Elon Musk is coming up with all these, you know, brilliant ideas about things and, you know, setting aside the fact that, he, you know, any sort of cronyism on the part of Tesla or whatever, I'm not really sure. But setting aside that fact, it does seem like people are more interested in innovative ideas that don't come from government in this particular area. Things like solar panel roads and, you know, roads that, you know, warm up in the winter so that, you know, that you don't have ice so it's safer and things like that. So it seems like people are warming up to this area, ironically, uh, to be a little bit more, you know, innovative. Yeah, and one of the things Walter Block points out, so by for people are curious, you just Google Walter Block private roads. He's got like a, you know, a collection of essays on this stuff. This is one of the areas where he's written a lot over the over the decades. You know, and he I don't have the, the figures that in my or in my fingertips right now, but I mean there are thousands and thousands of people who die every year on roadways. And his point is if this were something that were managed by the private sector, there would be outrages. You know, there'd be you know, congressional investigations and stuff. And why are you so but now it's just like taken for granted. Oh yeah, yeah, people die and they, like they blame it on the driver. And so I think if you had competition and roads were primarily owned, you know, by private owners, that there would be, you know, much more attention paid to road safety. And so, like, right now, if there's some real dangerous intersection where, gee, like, like per capita or whatever, man, a lot of people seem to die at that intersection, even, you know, compared to other roads nationally, the incentive, it's not like the mayor of that city is going to lose the next election race because of that intersection where, where more people die than really statistically ought to happen. You know what I mean? So just as the, you know, the incentives of fixing the roads, whereas if it were privately owned, I think the incentives would be there. And if like the, your business was just maintaining road, you know, you were the company that designed the road intersections or whatever, and it was always put up for by, by private people who paid for your services. And they looked at your, you know, your repertoire, they looked at your, your portfolio and said, yeah, I see here that last year you built this intersection. And right now this is the one place in the United States where more people die than any other one. I don't think I'm going to let you design my intersection for my road, you know, for my housing development. So I think you would see that. Last thing I'll say on this, there we take it for granted about how roads ought to be designed. And I think people just consider, oh, well, could we imagine private companies doing exactly the way the government does it right now, except they would be charging instead of, you know, paying through through gas taxes and stuff. But, you know, you got to think outside the box to use the cliche. For all we know, the, the current design is, is totally wrong. I mean, there's innovative people over in Europe that are trying things like um, like one guy's whole rationale or, or mo motivation is he's th he thinks that anytime you put up a sign as a road engineer, that's that's a sign, no pun intended, that you failed because like he thinks you're having you're trying to like force the outcome. So he designs intersections and things with, you know, traffic circles and whatnot without signs, without lights or anything. And so the motorists approaching that, they're a little bit confused. And so what do they do? They slow down and they really pay attention. And so there's no accidents. And there's this video, I saw this one guy where he was talking to a reporter, explained his concept, and they came up to this intersection that he had designed, and he turned around and walked backwards into the traffic to show how confident he was that the drivers were all going to be very alert and they just they just swarmed around him. And it, you know, it looked it looked like a theatrical performance or something. But it, it was a great demo. Whereas right now, you know, no one who designs the interstate highway system is going to turn around and walk backwards out on I-40 or something. He'd be dead. So uh, you're just just showing you the, um, the 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 way things are done. Well, yeah, there's been a government monopoly for a long time, and 
if we had genuine competition in these things, I think there'd be a lot of experimentation and maybe we would see that, oh yeah, the way people design roads right now in the United States is kind of silly. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but kind of the last bastion, if you will, for people uh, in, in, a, in accepting anarcho-capitalism or even being open to this kind of thinking has to do with defense, policing, and essentially the law itself. So let's kind of move into that and talk about why would defense services uh, and police services be better provided by a pure market? So, I mean, some of the objections people might come up with are, okay, we don't have a military anymore. It's all private contractors. How is that going to protect us if, you know, China invades or something like that? And and if, if everything is private policing, are we going to have these private police agencies uh, shooting at each other on the streets to protect their customers or or themselves trying to become a new state, essentially like a warlord of sorts? Uh, how would you address those objections? Okay, sure. So I, I think actually conceptually the real challenge for someone who who's trying to imagine a free society that's based just on voluntary relationships and there's no you know coercion that's deliberately imposed institutionally um i think conceptually it, it's the the legal system is the thing that's really hard to imagine like if you just stipulate for the moment that we've solved that problem and you could have a free society where there is a rule of law and everybody knows who owns what you know, if that if you already have that problem solved, then providing military defense, I think, is actually pretty straightforward. So the model there, just what I alluded to earlier, where I think you'd have insurance for really big ticket things, you know, funding, you know, who's going to pay for tanks and surface to air missiles and long range bombers and things like that. I think it would be insurance companies. And then all of that stuff would happen, though, under the, the framework of a rule of law. So that that's, you know, if, if some particular, you know, the company that makes tanks if people start getting nervous about, well, gee, you know, they're making a lot of extra tanks and uh, they're, they're starting to shake down people. Like they're showing up and saying, yeah, it'd be a shame if something happened to your uh, your property. Maybe you should, you should, you know, subscribe to our, our protection services. And they're starting to turn like in more into a, a crime group. Everybody would know they were being, they were acting criminally, right? Because th these things would all be separated. The same company wouldn't be making tanks and being in charge of the court system and, and would, wouldn't have the judges on the same payroll, right? The way that right now the state kind of takes care of all those functions. And so at the very least, if one company started crossing the line and wasn't really voluntary anymore and was starting to get coercive, at least that would be obvious to everybody and the legal system would rule it as such. And so you'd be able, I think, to nip it in the butt a lot earlier. And there'd be different companies, right? So it would be different agencies. It's not that the company that sold tanks to or maintained the tanks to protect LA would be the same one that provided the tanks to protect New York. And so um, in terms of worrying about this group taking over and oppressing everybody the way the current federal government takes you know, 20%, 30% of our income every year, it would be hard for that to happen. Like, you know, there'd be petty little groups. And if any one of them started getting out of the line, there'd be 99 competitors there that could, you know, that all its customers could turn to. Whereas right now, if you think the U.S. federal government is treating you unfairly, there's not too much you can do about it. So I, I, there's that element. So I'll, I'll stop it if you want to push back against that. But I, I think, that, you know, we haven't talked yet about how would private a private legal system work, which I think is just a quantum leap in terms harder in terms of 
understanding. But if you if you stipulate the private legal system for the moment, I actually think private defense isn't that big a deal. I would agree with that. So I I I, I mean I agree with your assessment that that is fundamentally the issue. So let let's talk about that. So right now we have instances where you know states the the state by by definition basically is is an institution that has a monopoly on law and violence in a given geographic area, right? So let's say if we didn't have that, we didn't have any states, all we had are businesses, pure market, who makes the rules? And as you're traveling around, how do you know what what legal system you're in? And how do you prevent it from becoming arbitrary? And who actually makes the final decisions? Because at some point, there has to be some type of authority where your, your appeal uh, whether that's in a, a court or or a transaction or whatever, uh, is is final and there's no more appeal. How do we resolve that in a private law system? Okay, so I think the first thing to to realize is that law existed before legislation existed, like in terms of human history. So humans knew there were things that were crimes before humans thought, oh, a, the king or the chief or a group of experts can tell us these are the list of of laws pertaining to this region, All right? So people knew it was a crime to kill somebody just because you were jealous of his wife or something, or just because you wanted his cow, you could just go bash his head in with a rock. People knew that that was wrong and a crime before they knew that, oh yes, there's some mechanism by which a small subset of us get to tell us the rules that get, that guide our behavior. Right, so the idea of legislation. So this is the distinction between law and legislation. That you know, Hayek stressed it. A lot of classical liberal thinkers stressed it. So I want to you know make sure people see that that it's more, it's a more recent invention where humans, I think, had the arrogance or the hubris to think that oh no, we can remake the rules governing society and you know nothing that's not going to blow up in our face. That's fine. So there, there's that element. And so in any particular group of people, there is going to be this general view of the things that are that are property in terms of, you know, the vocabulary that we would use, they would know, for example, yeah, you own your body. Okay. And so that's going to be pretty shared. And so that's why somebody can't just come up and punch you in the face or enslave you that people would realize that that's sort of the default position. They would know, you know, oh, the people who have been living in that house for 30 years, that's their house. It's not the house of the person who just walks up to it one day and says, this is mine. So there'd be these, these primitive underlying things. And now you know what what role would judges serve in that kind of framework well they would render opinions like even right now that that's the the language we use right what does the judge do the judge writes an opinion and so the, what the judge really is doing is that he's an expert in the law and so when two people have a dispute and they each claim that no no the law is on my side in this case they go to the judge and the judge issues an opinion saying I apply the law to these particular facts in this way. So in my opinion, the law comes down either on the side of the plaintiff or the defendant in this particular case. So the, the judge isn't making the law, the judge is interpreting and applying the law. So it's like a con I'm you know, describing the sort of common law framework. And so in that system, it, the two parties who go before the judge are both agreeing to it. They're consenting, they're saying, we can't work this out on our own. We, we have this disagreement. We both think we're in the right legally, so let's go to this judge and see what this person says. And so they're going to go to the judge who has a reputation for expertise in that particular area of the law in the community. So 
I, I mean, I, I'm sure you can come back and you, you know bring up the hard cases in a second. And I'm happy to deal with those, but I I think people need to just realize that the baseline general case, you know, day in day out, 99% of the cases that judges are going to hear are going to be people who have, you know, generally similar views about what the law is and what applies to their particular circumstances. And I think that would be the majority of, of the issue. So now for, for cases where, you know, that that's not the case, I mean, you can have pre-existing arrangements. And so if, yeah, if you're an employer and you're going to deal with some employee who has a radically different value system from you, then part of probably what you're going to specify in the employment contracts, not just, okay, you got to show up for work at this time. You're going to have this much vacation. I'm going to pay you this amount. I'm going to give you these benefits. But also if we have a dispute, then we agree to settle it through arbitration with, you know, this agency over here using this particular legal code. All right. So, you know, if, if some devout Muslim is going to go work for an Orthodox Jew, I mean, they might, you know, need to come up with some kind of arrangement. So I think with a lot of these things, even where they have their own, you know, what they think is the right kind of legal code, if you're dealing with somebody who has a radically different one, then as much as possible, you would want to specify that up front. So it's true. You could say, well, yeah, but isn't there still going to be overlap? Which you have that right now. So but I guess what I'm getting at is just saying, well, let's have a state that doesn't solve the logical problem, right? To just say, oh, you know what? In the in the geographical region of the United States right now, actually, the people have different views about abortion. Is that murder? Uh, different views about, well, suppose somebody, you know, is a serial killer and we catch him. Do we just have to keep him, you know, locked up till he dies or can we can we kill him? Can we torture him for three days and then kill him? Right. People have different views on that. And you and we can talk about, you know, how would a private legal system handle those different views. But my point is by just saying, oh, let's have a state impose a monopoly. You haven't all of a sudden made everyone have the same opinion. You've just now pushed the problem back to elections. And so now people who have different views on abortion hate each other's guts and they argue about who the president's going to be and who he's going to put on the Supreme Court. So it's not that we've solved these underlying disagreements. And I think in a voluntary framework, the hostility and conflict would be minimized and people would organize into different regions, you know, that had similar views. And so, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who had your shared legal framework, that's the way it would be decided. So I'll stop there. I know I've been talking a while and let you you guys push back, but I just it's, it's critical, I think, to say, yeah, these hard issues of people having vastly different views about what the law should be, you don't solve that problem and make them all agree just by having an election every four years. Yeah, I mean, you you, you kind of touched on what I think would be the major objection that someone who is is not an anarcho-capitalist might might have is, you know, if you have somebody who's just like a, a, a street thug who's just like, I'm going to rob you and kill you and, you know, I don't recognize any legal system. I mean, how, how do you deal with that kind of a person? And yeah, I'm just, I'm just sort of giving friendly pushback here because I, I, I agree with where you're coming from, but I'm putting myself in the mindset of somebody who maybe is, is just, they're, they're sympathetic to anarcho-capitalism, but they just can't quite get to that point on how do you deal with that kind of person, especially because, you know, as, as Christians, we recognize there's a sin nature, right? People are fallen, there's sin, uh, and not everybody's just going to you know, sing kumbaya all the time. So what what do you do with those really extreme cases where you have somebody who's just determined to kill you? Sure. And I'm, I'm sure you guys know this, but yes, yeah, precisely 
because I'm a Christian that I that my perspective on this is even bolstered. I'm even more confident in the stuff I'm saying that you know you you don't want to give this tremendous power to a small group of people precisely because of their fallen nature. You couldn't put you know if, if men are evil, you don't want a small group of them having all the nuclear weapons and being in charge of the prisons. That's crazy. Um, so the the way I handle this and this. I, I haven't had anybody explicitly say this is wrong or whatever. I just do want to say this is sort of my idea. So either I should be pat on the back if you think it's good, or you should I should be blamed if you think it doesn't work out. But I I think we don't actually need to say like, you know, what by what right do we have to have some you know defense agency go grab some guy against his will and put him in a in a van and drive him to some place and put him behind bars and hold him there as a hostage or or a prisoner. And, and, you know, people try to come up with the justification because the problem, you, if you have a system where you can spin out property rights, you know, like like Rothbard does it in The Ethics of Liberty. Hans Hoppe has lots of essays and things where he tries to, you know, from scratch, develop the libertarian framework. I think probably Stephen Kinsella has demonstrations like this. And those are fine. But the thing is, when when somebody violates those rules, it gets tricky. And so Rothbard, you know, has a principle like saying. If somebody violates property rights, then you're allowed to do to him, you know, the same thing he did. So some guy steals your TV, you can get your TV back and you can steal his TV, but you can't shoot him in the head. Right. So there's that kind of issue. You know, so it limits the amount of retaliation that you can do. But even that's a little bit arbitrary. And also it doesn't do stuff like if some guy's a sadomasochist and he comes and abuses you and then you get to abuse him twice back. I mean, that's kind of weird, but also he might like it. You know, <laughs> so there's there's weird stuff like that where. It's not clear that this principle makes much sense outside of things like theft of, of physical property. So wh where I'm coming from is say, fortunately, I don't think we really need to, to deal with that too much because let's say, yeah, there's some guy going around who's an ax murderer or whatever. Clearly, we can all agree that property owners have the right to say, I don't if you I don't want you on my property, get off my land. And they can, you know, eject you from their land, regardless of who you are. And so if there is a guy that the legal system has determined, you know, in the reputable courts and various judges have all signed off on it. And yep, yep, this guy, he's an axe murderer and he's a fugitive. Then, you know, the, it could just be a standard thing that all the property owners in this geographical region would just say, this guy is not welcome on our land. And if we see him, we are going to eject him. And so that my point is, it's not so much that we have to worry about, geez, do we have the legal right to go physically grab some guy? because he's a murderer and then go hold him in a place. And how long do we get to hold him? And can we torture him? Is that no, just every landowner would be saying, get off my land. And you're allowed to say that clearly. And then I think what the analog of prison would be in this kind of a framework is there would be some companies that would realize, okay, yeah, for the, at any given time, there might be like a hundred people like that in our big society who are totally outlaws and fugitives. And they're just gonna be pushed to the perimeter and starved to death because no one wants them on their land. And we'll like offer refuge to them. We you know we'll have secure walls, and we'll when they show up at our door, we'll search them for weapons, and we'll have you know complicated procedures to make sure our employees are safe and whatever. But we'll say you can come in here, and we'll provide room and board, and we'll give you a workstation if you're like an engineer, just you're you know you're really violent, you kill people or whatever. But you can work here. We're not gonna have you do something dumb like making license plates. You know we'll have you doing something as productive as possible, given the constraints on your physical movement, and so. These these prisons would be like competing with each other. They'd be like hotels or with 
a lot of uh, strict limits on your your movement. And once you went in there, you know, the, the, the surrounding regions would say, OK, but these people can't leave and come onto our property. So that, to me, that's that's the way you would handle these really hard cases of just you know, some guy who's who's crazy going around killing people with an axe is that technically, legally, what would be happening is all the property owners would say, get this guy off my land. It's not that they'd say he's an axe murderer and therefore you have the right to kidnap him. Instead, they would just be saying, I want him off my land. He's not leaving. Remove him. So if everybody is saying that except these 12 places that you know offer refuge, you know, the, the agency could say to the guy, you know, we're pushing you off everyone else's land. Where do you want to go? And he would pick the most reputable one or something. So that that's kind of, I mean, in the I, I know that I'm, I'm leaving a lot of loose ends there, but in the, in the context of our conversation here, that I'll, I'll stop there. It's okay that you don't go into it because we'd be here for hours, of course, and you've given us a lot of resources to go look into. We do want to ask a couple things, you know, Libertarians, you know, of course, don't care anything about the poor. But for the three progressives who might be listening, we probably should talk about how would this society, and by the way, that was sarcasm, how would this sort of society provide for, if you will, uh, the needs of those who can't afford the kinds of things that we're talking about everybody's going to be just paying for out of pocket? Sure. And believe it or not, I actually think the, the biggest change would be in the, in the, the welfare in the sense of you know, well-being, not like government welfare checks, of the, the disadvantaged. Okay, so I don't think billionaires right now are the ones who are being particularly oppressed by the state. I think it is the people who are born in the inner city and whatever in the United States. Or certainly, especially in foreign countries, like you know, they're the ones that are really bearing the brunt of the oppression of the state right now, and, and, and the bearing the the full fruit of its of its operations. So. You know, getting rid of things like the drug war, getting rid of compulsory school attendance rules that force young people to sit there in really horrible government schools where they literally might not be physically safe. And they're certainly not learning very much. I mean, getting rid of the minimum wage, a lot of these things, if you know standard economics from a free market perspective, you can see why, oh, yes, that would transform the inner city. There wouldn't be drive-by shootings if you legalize drugs. They, people would be able to go out and get a decent job and start earning money, and so they wouldn't end up joining gangs and things like that. So, I think, you know, we we shouldn't just take it for granted that oh yeah, there's this huge population in the United States right now that's living on the verge of starvation, and thank goodness the government is there sending them food stamps. That no, the government is, depending on how conspiratorial you are, you either say wittingly or unwittingly is the one that's keeping them in that in that position of dependence. And so uh, I, I think that they would be a lot better off. And the other thing, too, is the state does not create resources through redistribution. On the, you know, it's the opposite. They, they squander resources. So it, it's not like there would be, you know, if we had a free society, there'd be a lot more money in the hands of the productive people to be able to use through genuine philanthropy to help those who really needed it. And, and I think... So there'd be more to go around and it would be better targeted going through voluntary institutions designed to help the poor who really would have incentive to get them back on their feet and get them off dependency. Whereas government agencies that hand out relief, it's actually in their interest to multiply the number of recipients because then they can ask for a bigger budget. So you know, the, the, the people in charge of food stamps actually, I'm not saying any individual you know, is thinking this, plotting at night, how can I make more people hungry? But in terms of the logic of expanding your operation, 
in terms of the government, you know, budgets and so on, you don't want to solve the problem that you're in charge of. You want to just facilitate it. Right. They're not trying to work themselves out of a job. Right. And, and again, it's, it's not that I'm saying any particular person who happens to be working in those bureaucracies, you know, has any ill intent. But it's again, the incentives are different. If it's, you know, you're some private church who out of the general collection also has, you know, takes some of that money to provide, you know, soup or something to the people, the homeless people in your city there. I mean, they really do want those people. They would like it if all of a sudden, you know, over time they transitioned all those people and got them jobs or got them into, you know, treatment or whatever. And they stopped showing up for soup because they didn't need it anymore because they had a job. That would be great. And the church would spend its money on, you know, sending missions to Africa or something. But again, the, the government agency in charge of sending out food stamps, they, they would, yeah, like you said, they would all lose their jobs if the problem actually got solved. Well, in summary of that, it sounds like you're saying that in a genuine free market with stable property rights where people respect it, the market success, if you will, will take care of the poor. And then the successes of others will allow them to be charitable and truly take care of the poor rather than outsourcing it to to a state. Yeah, I mean, so it's a two pronged thing. The first thing is just the moral issue that if you're saying point blank, you know, forget all your pragmatic arguments and whatever. Just if it comes down to it, suppose, you know, the choice is we take money from these wealthy people at gunpoint in order to give money, you know, give that money to some person who's hungry so he can go buy food. Is that moral? If you're backing me into a corner, I'm going to say, no, that's not moral. That's stealing. And you're not allowed to steal even if you plan on doing something noble with the money. If, If you're so concerned about those poor people, then you give your money or you do a public campaign to get enough people to donate, but no, you can't use guns to go take money from people against their will to give to poor people. So, you know, there's that moral issue, but also, yeah, pragmatically, I do think you're actually not helping poor people in the long run that you're just stifling, you know, private philanthropy because people like, like with Ebenezer Scrooge, right? That people are saying, no, I'm not going to contribute that much to these voluntary efforts because the government taxes me like crazy to, for food stamps and all this stuff and welfare payments and what have you. So, public housing. No, I'm not going to pay more. I don't need to. The government's taking care of that. So if you got rid of all that stuff, people in the private sector would have a lot more disposable income. And then they would realize, oh, no, the government, there isn't the state agency that's allegedly taking care of these people. It's up to us. And so, yes, I think you would see more donations, but also the donations would be more effective. As we kind of close out by talking about implementation here, um, you know, one of the objections that that I've heard many times, and I'm sure many of our listeners have heard is, well, if all this anarcho-capitalism stuff uh, really works so great, why hasn't it been tried more throughout history? And there's different uh, pushback we could we could put up against that. I mean, we could talk about how statelessness is really the natural condition of human society. We could talk about how already the overwhelming majority of legal and business conflicts are resolved through private arbitration. Uh, we could talk about how the oceans don't have an international governing body. They're governed under maritime law, which is essentially private law. Outer space is governed under essentially a a kind of recognized common type law. Um, And and even nation states themselves, we don't have a world government. Nation states fundamentally are engaged in in a semi-anarchic system insofar as they don't have a single world ruler. So those are all kind of pushback we could give against that. But my question is, Practically speaking, here we are in 2017, how would we transition into that type of a system, especially when we're surrounded by uh, nation states that 
wouldn't be making the transition along with us? How would that work? That's a great question. And, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know what the right answer to that is. I, I think that in terms of all these other objections people are bringing up and so on, you know, stuff like how would there be private roads to me that that's silly. I can't believe that somebody who otherwise knows the benefits of the free market, you know, how they could doubt that private business would be able to figure out how to pave a road from point A to point B and make money doing it. You know, clearly business would figure out a way to do that. That's not an issue. But yeah, the question when you, when you say why, you know, why is it that if this is so great, because it's, it's not just that I'm claiming, oh yeah, on the margin, people would be 12% better off. No, I mean, I think it would just, you couldn't even imagine how prosperous, and it's not just a matter of material prosperity, but just the outrages of, you know, people getting killed, like just the stuff we see all the time in the United States about, you know, police officers using excessive force and then getting acquitted of it. And, you know, whether you think those are the right decisions or not in those particular cases, under a private framework like I'm talking about, the company, you know, it's not just that there'd be, oh, it's the police or nothing the way it is right now. And people, you know, rush to defend the police. Oh, when someone's breaking into your house, I guess you're not going to call 911, right? Because you complained about that cop who was too rough with that teenager. That's not the issue. If in any given area, there were 12 different companies that provided, you know, defense service or police services or whatever term you want to use. And if one of them happened to have a history of, geez, it seems like your officers, a lot of times, your employees, they wouldn't call them officers, use excessive force. Well, then the merchants and whatever, the homeowners associated would switch to the competitor, right? So it, it would minimize the problem. Whether that, you know, in a particular instance, that person was convicted of a homicide or manslaughter will you not be the issue. The company that routinely didn't provide proper training and, and didn't do enough background checks and hired people who were kind of violent or whatever, they would go out of business, right? So you, given that I'm thinking this free society I'm imagining would just be so much more livable and, you know, full of happy, prosperous people, it is kind of odd to say, okay, well, why hasn't that happened? They would just need to be tried somewhere once and then it would work. And wouldn't that be a model for the world? And so I'm confessing, I, I don't know exactly what, what the explanation there is. I guess for one thing I can just say is, um, you know, the enemy has done a good job of persuading people to tolerate these horrible, un, you know, systems of injustice that they, they live under. And I think it's it's an issue. I know it sounds cliched, but of like, you know, education in the sense of, hey, you got to free your mind, man, and then the rest will follow. Right. That it's I think fundamentally, if you say, why is it in the United States that people still live under this oppressive government that takes so much of their income every year, plunges their, you know, young men and women into these foreign wars and so on that don't even keep us safe? I would say it's just because they've been convinced that it's the only way. And that they really just can't conceive of an alternative. And the few places where states do break down, like in Somalia or whatever, that's not because everyone read Rothbard and saw the light. It's because the state became so corrupt and decrepit, it just kind of collapsed under its own weight and devolved into bailing warlords. And so that's what people associate and say, oh, yeah, we've seen what happens when the state disappears. But that's that's really that's just an example where the state got so bad it collapsed temporarily. That's not really a good assessment of what happens if in the U.S., given our value system and prosperity and degree of peace with our neighbors, we just decided to stop using coercion on each other, what would happen then? That's a far different thing from saying, what if the state became so tyrannical it actually you know, cannibalized itself and collapsed for three years? Well, there is 
a whole lot to think about in the time we, we spent together today, and we could probably keep going on and on uh, on our outline. We have plenty of things we uh, wish we would have had time to ask you. Bob, thanks for being part of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, guys, and I'm really glad you exist and you're filling a niche, that's for sure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and if you'd like to give us some support, you can go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.